my name is Sally Clark. I'm, I'm going to just be up here for a few moments because I'm actually not why you're here. You're here for the smart people. Uh, I do want to thank SkillUp and the Funders Collaborative. Uh, they do a tremendous amount of work for our community trying to figure out how we get smarter about getting people into careers, into living wage jobs, um, things that are important for our individuals, families, and our overall community. And I definitely am uh, happy to be here uh, and uh, say welcome to the Aspen Institute for being a part of this. I'm a big fan of the Aspen Institute and I'm involved with uh, an affiliated fellowship, the Aspen Rodell Fellowship for Public Service, and have appreciated the wide range of involvement that Aspen has and again trying to foment really good conversations for us so that we can make good decisions and figure out how to do that as whatever th that definition of community is uh, locally here and also nationally. So I, I'm just going to say a couple of things um, related to, to uh, Susan identified my two committee responsibilities. So the, the sort of community development portfolio that we put together for my committee has to do a lot with the, the sort of affordable city of who we are and who we're trying to, who we're trying to not be uh, and who we are trying to be here as a city as, as we deal with coming out of the recession and also with some of the success that we're enjoying uh, in, in this kind of tech-related and global health-related boom that Seattle is experiencing and trying to figure out how do we make sure that all segments of our community enjoy uh, some, some part of that. Um, the minimum wage uh, committee, we could spend all night talking about that, but we won't uh, because it's, some of us, it actually makes us a little sick to our stomach to continue to talk about it, not speaking for myself. But um, so just, just a couple of things, and, and you know, it's a Friday afternoon, so bear with me. Are these really all completely in the right logical order? No, I admit that. It's fine. Uh, and you'll notice that this is not really in the complete logical order. But uh, with reference to what we're going to talk about here with, our, with our, our guests here in a couple of moments, we're at Town Hall. We're in the, you know, the basement of Town Hall here. Most of us attending here today are not, I'm going to take a wild guess, low-wage workers. Uh, most of us are, a few, yeah, I'm, and again, most of us are not low-wage workers, but some, some folks have been able to attend. And yet, uh, we are all completely dependent upon low-wage workers <laughs> in our lives. Uh, there is uh, not a way that we go out to eat, get a coffee, uh, work in clean offices, have our kids go to reasonably secure daycare. Uh, we don't shop for what we need. Uh, we don't make a visit to the doctor's office. We don't see our parents cared for without the involvement of low-wage workers. Uh, and that's not, the way I'm saying that is, is kind of purposeful. That's not necessarily a good set of assumptions that all of that has to happen with low-wage work or that it does happen with low-wage work. Uh, we live, I'm going to cite just a couple of things that, that we knew from going through our minimum wage uh, evaluations of sort of who the low-wage workers are in the Seattle economy right now. Uh, we, we live in a city of contradictions, right? So South Lake Union is booming. Downtown has a lot of good things happening. We're seeing development. Who, who knew Ballard would be a hot neighborhood? If, if anybody had said 20 years ago, Ballard is going to be the hippest neighborhood in the Northwest, everybody would have been like, yeah, right, that's, that's not happening. About 100,000 people working in Seattle earn less than $15 per hour right now. 100,000 people. About 40% of those working in Seattle and earning minimum wage actually live outside of the city. There's a lot of driving to find a wage that'll get you something to help uh, pay the bills with. Among the lowest wage Seattle residents, 55% actually work in the city, and that's uh, lower than for all workers. Low wages are more likely, as most of us know, among workers with, uh, who are younger, less educated, more often than not female. Uh, 
and more often than not, uh, low wages skew with uh, racial and ethnic uh, higher numbers in terms of uh, folks who are, again, struggling with low wages. The most common occupations in Seattle for low wage work, food preparation and serving, sales, office and administrative support, personal care and service, and transportation and materials moving, uh, moving stuff point A to point B. The most common industries for low-wage workers, accommodations and food services, retail, health care and social assistance, and education services. And if you're tracking our universal pre-K discussion right now, you know that wages are a big conversation for not just preschool instructors, but daycare overall. And it's one of the more ironic things that people who take care of the most vulnerable in terms of our youngest Seattleites and our eldest and most infirm Seattleites um, low wages tend to, to skew in, in, in our area towards those directions. Um, Washington State has now, uh, as, of, as of this past May, regained in numbers, in raw numbers, all the jobs that we lost in the recession. That's great. Unfortunately, they aren't exactly the jobs that we lost in the recession. We didn't get all, the, all of the uh, better paying uh, industrial manufacturing type jobs, although Seattle did better than some other regions did in terms of uh, manufacturing and industrial. But I think part of this, part of what we you know, read about and part of what we're experiencing in our economy as well as, as witnessing in other places is the increase in, in um, service economy jobs, which again are sort of part of, part, of this, part of this assumption that we have about the economy that somehow those have to be low paying, that somehow those have to be minimum wage only when we know that the people who are occupying those jobs are no longer the summer teenager and they're no longer the person who is in there for just six months. It's people trying to make a life. And that, for a, to a great degree, really drove our discussion about minimum wage in Seattle and drives the discussion, I think, in, in a lot of cities. And you may have seen that San Francisco is looking at um, their own approach to a four-year phase in of $15. Finally, I want to say there is no neighborhood that I visit in Seattle that is not clamoring for an employer to land there. And it's usually a clamor for an employer that will bring a lot of employees. You know, when I go to the North Rainier neighborhood, when I go to Ballard, when I go to uh, Rainier Beach, people want an employer. They want jobs in the neighborhood that people in the neighborhood have, uh, have access to, have the ability, the fighting chance to land a job with that employer. And they know that it's good for the neighborhood because you've got people walking around and helping to feed the daytime economy. And that uh, is a struggle because sometimes we're at odds with ourselves about whether we're willing to take the land use decisions, make the land use decisions that make it attractive for an employer to be in a, in a particular part of our city. All these things kind of come together with as we're trying to think about who are, who are we as a city going forward and what are the assumptions that we're going to make about um, who we are as a city and what our economy looks like. And it has a lot to do with the choices that we're willing to make as, as consumers, but um, if you can do uh, if you can get the extra reading in and take a look through Zanup's book, uh, there are some assumptions that we can change. And I think we're going to hear about some of the, some of the examples of, of, of retail and others where we have assumed that our economy has to function in a particular way and that Seattle is a part of, of assuming that there have to be these low-wage, kind of dead-end, soulless uh, occupations that people, unfortunately, get stuck in. And, uh, and that's... You know, there's, there's sort of the human part of that about not wanting to have any of our people stuck in that kind of place where you're not 
uh, there isn't, uh, there's not only not a wage uh, that's, that's livable, but there's not a relationship, uh, not a place where you feel uh, trusted, respected, and like a human being uh, in the work that you do, more than just uh, the set of hands that shows up to do the work. And I like, the, I like the, the thing about it, is it a set of hands that's being hired, or is it a human being that's being hired? And how do we, how do we think about those two things? So I'm uh, very delighted to have this conversation be a part of, of what we're talking about in Seattle. Uh, and I think that the, uh, I love that some of the models that we're talking about have also been rooted in Seattle. And that's something for us to be proud of. And we need to figure out how to um, spread it further and to invest in it more. Invest in people, recognize that that's our focus, that's our strength, and um, we have a lot of work to do in that in terms of taking that to scale, as the, as the geeks say. And with that, I will go ahead and stop with my remarks and hopefully uh, get to the interesting part here. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sally. Um, one of the things that I've known about Sally for a long time, and she shows it every time she speaks, is that she can handle the most difficult discussions. She's wicked smart, and she has a wicked sense of humor. So we're very lucky to have her. So the, my, my next task is that I get to introduce the panel. We've got an exceptional panel today. And first off um, is Maureen Conway, who is a dear friend and um, an old friend. And Maureen, pardon? Not that old. Not as old as I am, all right. <laughs> um, I first met Maureen about 15 years ago, and it was just as the work was starting on trying to define what an, a sectoral employment strategy was. And we became friends after having been locked in a room with no windows for two days trying to define it. Uh, luckily, we haven't had to do quite that ever since, but we still have a lot of time to, to talk about, as policy nerds, um, where we should go and to stand on street corners in the rain for two hours while we continue doing it and thinking nobody else would want to do this. Um, Maureen is fabulous. Um, she is a, rat, a researcher at Aspen Institute and she has national scope in the work that she does. She is also a product of her Catholic girlhood which is that she is very, very principled in what she does and what she thinks. We can move this along. Ah, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it isn't often a chance that I get a chance to say things like this about Maureen in person, so it's kind of fun that she's blushing. So um, Maureen, we're really happy to have you here today, and it's very exciting for us to be able to share this particular um, program with you. I'm also delighted to have Zainab Tan here today, and I first was exposed to Zainab's work um, through Maureen, and Zainab has done years and years of research, and what she said to me was, well, you know, I'm an, oper I, I'm an operational researcher. Really, this isn't what I set out to do when I started looking at these, these very large companies and looking at how they do what they do. And I got into this kind of work because I also was working um, in my parents' factory when I was a teenager sewing pockets on the back of clothing. So Zainab is um, very smart. She's very analytical. 
and she is also really giving us an opportunity to know about how we can do things in a third way so that we really do well by doing good. We're also delighted to have Richard Galanti with us, and Richard was one of the people who worked with Zainab, as Costco was one of the companies that Zainab studied. And you know, Costco's our hometown favorite. And what I was trying to explain. Among others. Among others. <laughs> along with the Seahawks and the Mariners, Costco is our hometown favorite. And one of the things that Costco has really epitomized over the years is that Costco has been able to give us great products to do that in a way that is very cost effective and also to do that as a really good corporate citizen. So I'm really delighted to introduce our panel and I'm going to leave it to Maureen now that I've embarrassed her totally. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. So thank you, Susan, and thank you all for being here this afternoon. I'm just going to say a couple of remarks quickly and then ask, some, ask a bunch of questions of the smart people. Um, so, uh, so first, I just, I just want to say that uh, this event for the, for the Aspen Institute is part of our Working in America series. And in the Working in America series, we've been looking at a lot of um, different issues that affect working Americans today. And I'm, I very much appreciate um, Sally Clark's remarks because uh, many of the things she said about uh, low-income workers are not just in Seattle, but of course all across the country. And I think she framed that uh, very nicely, some of, the, some of the challenges that working people face. One of the numbers that I keep in my head is this uh, from uh, Paul Osterman, a colleague mm -hmm. of Zeynep's, which is, you know, between, depending on which low-wage standard you use, between one in four and one in five working adults, so not just kids, adults between the age of uh, 24 and 65 are in a low-wage job today. And for the purposes of this conversation where we're, where we're looking at retail, so 17% um, of those are employed in the retail sector. And among retail employees, 49% um, are low-wage employees. So there's a lot of low-wage work going on in retail. So it's really great to have um, research and, and great company models that, that show us it doesn't have to be this way. Um, so I also... Um, uh, just want to thank Susan uh, very much for hosting us here today because we've been hosting these conversations primarily in our offices in DC and for a variety of reasons it's great to get out of DC um, <laughs> and uh, so this is the first one that we've gotten to to do um, in a location other than the, other than DC and we expect to do some in a few other spots around the country as we as we move forward so I really appreciate Susan uh, being willing to work with us as we as we do our first conversation outside of outside of Washington DC um, uh, I also need to thank um, our supporters for this series uh, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation the Ford Foundation the Serdina Foundation and the Hitachi Foundation without whose support we wouldn't be able to be having these conversations um, okay so I think that is my, uh, the extent of my uh, things I need to say, except for that um, the hashtag, if you are tweeting, is uh, talkgoodjobs. So, um, so uh, and my millennial staffer will really be happy if you tweet. So um, <laughs> <laughs> please go ahead. Um, all right. So 
So just to start, I think it's really helpful, Zainab, if you can kind of, you talk about these four strategies in your book that are really, as, as Susan mentioned, about sort of operations and things. So I think it would be helpful for everybody to, uh, to set the context of the conversation if you can kind of lay out what are the, the four yep. strategies to have a good job strategy. And what the good job strategy is. First, yes. thank you, um, Maureen. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, and thank thanks, you. Susan, for setting this up and for reminding me. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be here in Seattle. Uh, the whole world is watching you. Uh, um, so, so the good job strategy is, an, you know, at a high level, it's a strategy that delivers great value for investors and for customers while creating good jobs for employees. And it's a strategy that doesn't require charging customers more. So the companies that I've studied that, that, that have this good, good job strategy offer their customers the lowest prices. That's important to just uh, get out. And when I looked at companies that were having this great combination of low prices, good jobs, and great performance, I found that they were making some very specific choices uh, that allowed them to, 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 to do all this. So in particular, I saw that they were doing two different things. One is, um, we've heard about employees as hands. Was it uh, employees as hands? So, so they don't see employees as just hands, uh, hired hands, but they see their employees as human beings, and human beings who can drive sales, who can, who can generate profits and generate growth. So they invest in them. So the first part of the good job strategy is investment in employees. They, they pay them higher wages, they train in train them more than their competitors, offer them better schedules than their competitors do. So that's the first part. But anytime you make an investment in something, you want to generate a good return on that investment. So the key part of the good job strategy is making very smart choices, and oftentimes counterintuitive choices, that make employees more productive, that allow employees to have fewer mistakes when they do their jobs, that allow them to have a bigger role in driving up sales and reducing costs, and that allow them to be part of continuous improvements. So, so when I looked at these companies, I found four choices that were coming, coming among them. And let me go through those four choices really quickly, because that's really the heart of the good job strategy. Um, the first one is, all of these companies offer less to their customers. So while most retailers try to offer so many products, you know, as many products as they can, open longer hours, uh, offer promotions. These companies offer fewer products. They don't offer promotions. They, they have consistent low pricing. And, and, and they also are not open all the time. And offering less allows them to reduce their costs, make their employees more productive, and really put their employees at the center of their success because now their employees are more familiar with the products and they can help customers choose uh, if, if, if they need to. So offer less is the first one. The second one is the killer combination in job design, which is, on the one hand, standardizing all the things that need to be standardized, so all the routine work, like maintenance, uh, safety walks, uh, shelving merchandise, and, 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 and benefiting from those uh, consistencies and efficiencies, but at the same time empower employees to improve those standards and empower employees to make decisions for local customers. And as a result, employees can generate higher sales. They could, they could be part of uh, lowering cost. The third, so, so first offer less, second standardize and empower. The third one is cross-train. Um, and they cross-train their employees so they can do multiple tasks. So when the customers are there, they could attend customers. When the customers are not there, they could do other things. Again, this increases the productivity of their employees and, and, and um, 
and offer them better, offer their customers better service. And then the last decision, and it doesn't sound nice, I know, because it has Slack in it, but it's operate with Slack. So in any retail environment, you never know how much work you're going to have. Right? You, you can't ever know exactly how many hours of work th that needs to be done. Most retailers are on the side of having too few people. But these model retailers actually are on the side of having too many people rather than too few. That way, everything is done. There aren't operational problems. Customers are served. And that way, employees can be a part of continuous improvement. So these four choices, each of these four choices were great for customers. They were great for employees because they make jobs better jobs. And they were great for investors because they reduce costs and improve productivity. And these four choices were really nice with each other. So, you know, operating with Slack works before this, because these companies have cross-trained their employees because they've standardized. So, so it's a system that really works uh, very nicely together. And it's a system, you know, companies can make these choices because they have invested in their employees. And they can invest in their employees because they have made these choices. So, so, so both, you know, these two things enable each other. So that's the, the, uh, just what the good job strategy is about. Great, thanks. So Richard, so Zainab's laid out this strategy kind of in the, the abstract, what is the strategy? But maybe you could tell us, you know, for Costco, how does this play out and to what degree does this capture or not capture how you think about this? And in general, sort of to what degree does Costco embrace, embrace this employment philosophy? So, yeah. When we first met, I said, and read the, the basic four tenets, you think that this is, uh, that the founders of Costco read the book before they started Costco. Uh, <laughs> it, it, a lot of it's common sense too, it got to be counterintuitive, but when you put it all together, and uh, it's worked very well for us from the beginning of time. I mean, you talk the old cliche that your employees are your biggest asset. They really are, um, particularly if you aren't thinking along the lines of traditional, how little can we pay, but how much can we pay? Can we provide a secure and safe environment for them, a fair environment, growth opportunities, uh, you know, live uh, high quality, low cost health benefits, all those things. And a lot of the other things will take care of itself. And uh, so I think from the beginning of time, uh, you know, Jeff and Jim, the two founders of Costco, and, and most notably Jim, who was till two years ago already retired, uh, you know, president and CEO of the company, uh, you, you need a great leader to start. And somebody that every time it's questioned, do we really have to pay more in Missoula, Montana, the same wage that we pay in LA and New York? Uh, yes, and by the way, it's simpler. So fewer, yeah. fewer columns is easier too to manage. Uh, and I, when Sally was talking earlier, uh, she talked about you can operate profitably and pay good wages, and do things that not everybody else does. The immediate thought that came into my mind was 10 or 15 years ago at Costco, maybe 15 or 18 years ago, uh, when Jim walked in one day and said, uh, "Who's the company that provides the overnight?" cleaning of the offices and says, I want to hire them. I want to hire the people, you know, Lord, what we pay the third party, which includes the carry that they're going to make is less than we pay our own employees, what we pay the total, including the wage. And so, you know, it's the right thing to do. And so I think uh, at every juncture, uh, when we missed our numbers as a public company and the stock came down a little bit and, you know, I love institutional investors used to always say, um, you know, it's great that Costco pays high wages and has the best quality products at the lowest price. 
And uh, they're saying that and they applaud it because the stock was going up because earnings were going up. And as soon as we stubbed our toe a couple of times, they say it's better to, and one analyst in fact came out, the title of his uh, equity research report was, it's better to be a Costco employee or customer than it is to be a Costco shareholder. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, we proved him wrong over time. And I think everybody's uh, drank the Kool-Aid, if you will, since then in terms of it is right. Now, another one that reminded me of is, uh, you know, the challenge was, the problem with Costco is, is they think too long term. Because we were always talking about this is the right thing to do long term for the shareholders. It's going to drive long term profitability. And uh, I remember one analyst saying the problem with Costco is long term is 50 years from now. Jim's response was the problem with Wall Street is long term is next Tuesday. And uh, <laughs> probably 50 years is a little too long, but certainly longer than the next Tuesday. But getting back to you know our philosophy, I, I did draw, make some notes up because I love talking about it. I, I'm lucky. I get to talk about this stuff. And it's nice to work for a company, not only has it been successful, but where your customers and your employees like you and trust you. And I, I wanna share some of the philosophy, which is similar to what Zainab just talked about, but also, how do you save money by doing that too in terms of expenses? If you're paying all this extra money, where does it come in terms of efficiencies? So, you know, certainly, the original uh, single syllable words, simple bullet points, and every, we are the king of simple uh, at Costco, uh, in terms of it's much easier to manage less than 4,000 items than it is for a supermarket that has to manage 40 or 50,000 items. Then in Nordstrom, great company Nordstrom, different business, they manage over a million items if you think about styles, colors, shapes, and sizes. And so we can be a lot smarter managing 3,800 items. Uh, but in terms of, you know, take care of your employees, that was the basic tenet from the very beginning. Uh, a good living wage, affordable, good health care, opportunities for growth. Hopefully, if we can grow, they can grow too. Fairness, and fairness is, you know, you gotta work at that all the time. It's very easy to hire somebody you're more comfortable with as a supervisor. Uh, and so, we're, that's a constant uh, metric that we look at within, uh, that we measure to make sure that all groups are represented and, uh, and we have improvement to do. And it's also okay to rub our nose in when we made a mistake because we'll, we'll, we'll get better from that. Uh, in terms of what are the things that we put in place to do that, I think from the beginning of time, we have an open door policy. We have an open door that's a real open door. Anybody can, if an employee, if an hourly employee has been suspended or been, feels that he or she is being, he and maybe fellow employees in a given location in, in Omaha is being treated unfairly by the manager, there's favoritism, there's harassment, whatever it is. If they've caught to their supervisor and to the manager, or not maybe not the manager because that's the problem, but to the regional manager, to the VP, they're allowed to go all the way up to the CEO. And I've been in you know, Craig's office now when the phone rings and he answers it and, and it's, it's that example. We're not going to change every time, but I can tell you, uh, you know, certainly on an often amount, uh, you know, we'll change things because we act upon it. And so having that open door, uh, it takes time, it takes effort, but it works for us. Um, a formal review process that every employee has to be reviewed every year, starting with a self-review that the supervisor then, uh, then shares his or her views as well. Um, Every three years, uh, we do uh, a new employee handbook. This is not a negotiated contract. This is what we write and we send to our employees. But we don't just sit in a room and write it ourselves. Every location has uh, their own selected employees, all six, in the case of the United States, all 460 employees. They, they, uh, uh, they form caucus groups. And it could be everything from vacation and sick uh, to policies on promotion, to can I wear shorts longer into the hot season or the, the cooling season, uh, to open 
you know, no, you can't wear open-toed shoes because it's an industrial environment, but um, they're, they're heard. And then before it comes out, as it comes out, we're also putting together and communicating with all of our employees, here's what you asked for, here are the things that we're happy to do, here are the things that we're not prepared to do and why. And, and we can't do everything, but I think that transparency, that openness and that honesty, and let them know, and again, they're trusting only for one reason, they deserve, we deserve to be, management deserves to be trusted, I think, because it starts at the top and it's pushed down through, through the whole system that, that, that all employees uh, have, have, the, have the right to be heard. Um, another uh, one of those uh, little bullet points in single syllable words, keep your employees safe and secure. I, I just a couple of little you know, sound bite examples. Um, in 1993, Costco and the Price Company merged. Costco basically acquired its competitor, Price Club, uh, through, through merger. Uh, both at the time had about 100 locations, so both had about 25,000 employees. You know, each of us were in 20 or 25 states. One was in Eastern Canada and one was in Western Canada. We both had just entered Mexico. So, uh, and also we were very alike because many of the people that started Costco came from San Diego where the price company had started. And um, I remember in the press release, one of the, in the draft press release, and Jim was very proud of me because I put it in without him making me. Uh, but we talked about, you know, a lot of times when you hear about two companies merging, they talk about the synergies, saving hundreds of millions of dollars in synergies. Well, synergies in many cases include laying off employees. Now, you're going to have a little overlap, absolutely. But we actually had a sentence in our press release that said there will be no layoffs. Now, some people chose not to move, and we've had great severance packages. But Jim's view was is 10% of our employees are in home offices. We can, we're going to grow our company. We can afford to have a little slack, if you will, but we can afford to have a little extra cost there. Uh, we're not going to you know, you know, hurt people's lives because of it, or we're going to mitigate whatever we have to do. Um, I, these are, again, sound bites that have always you know, stayed in my mind, and I think everybody that has heard them is the same thing. Um, the, the, the other one that I'll talk about before I talk about one other thing is, uh, is in bad times. You know, in late 08, the world was coming to end. The economy was going to hell. Everybody's house was worth less than it was the day before for the first time in their entire life. Um, their 401k plan was worth 65% of what it was the day before or, or the month before. And nobody was expecting raises uh, across industry, uh, uh, certainly hourly people. And, and Frank, they were worried about their jobs. They were worried about their hours being cut back. And you know, Jim sent out a message saying is, is that we, are, you know, we can't promise what the future holds, but rest assured that we're going to do everything possible not to lay people off and not to cut people's hours back. The other thing is, I mentioned that three-year handbook. Every few years, 60% of our hourly employees are at top of scale. What they want to see in that handbook is, is every March for the next three years, because it's in March of 13 to 40, be 16, but in March of 10, which was a year and a half into this terrible economy, which is still sputtering a little bit, um, anybody at the top of scale want to see what are, what are they going to get an increase in March 10, 11, and 12, or 11, 12, yeah, 10, 11, and 12. And um, historically, a top of scale was about $20 an hour back then. And we gave about a 50 cent hour top of scale increase. That's about two and a half percent at the top of scale. Mind you, we've got uh, a, four, a four billion dollar annual labor expense. Um, so, you know, one percent of anything is 40 million a year. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, historically, we'd give 50 cents the prior three years in a good economy. And to do that, we'd give 25, 25 cents an hour on, in March and 25, 25 cents an hour in September. We've done that 
for 15, 20 years. That's how it, so 50 cents was half now and half in six months. And we, the senior executives go into the room for the meeting to talk about the new employee handbook. And Jim starts off by saying, you know, this is a tough time for everybody. Everybody's 401k's down. They're borrowing from it. Um, they're worried about their jobs. Everybody knows somebody that's been laid off or whose hours may come back somewhere else. I uh, says, this is a time that we need to figure out how to give more, not less. And, um, and of course, we all knew where this conversation was going before it even started. Uh, and, uh, and he said, but on top of that, we're going to give the entire 50 cents, but we're going to give it all on day one in March instead of, of uh, a half and half. Well, that was about a $37 million a year hit to the company. But it was the right thing to do. He says, this is a time when they need to know that we're strong. And, and it was very cool. And when you see that, when one time in our 30 years, we've had to change what we charge the employee for their portion of payroll contribution to, for uh, payroll deduction for uh, health care. That was in 03 after 10 years of not changing it. And uh, throughout that process, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to give you different examples of where we've done things that have been costly, but long term it does right by us. I'm going on to too many of these, but I have to. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to. I'm, I'm not sure no, I can me, let me just, the math in the last one. <laughs> let, me, let me talk, though, about um, if we do all those things, the transparency, pay well, hopefully be fair. When we're not fair, kick us and tell us, and we'll be fair tomorrow. Um, uh, oh, the last little anecdote. We have 3,000 employees at Central Office in Issaquah. We have about 1,900 car parks, soon to be increased with a new triple deck that we're doing. Uh, but there's about 300 spaces that are the best. There are 100 under each of three buildings, so they're, they're nice and cool in the summer, and they're dry and, and, uh, and, and warm in the winter because they're, you know, they're covered, and you don't have to walk 200 yards to your car. Uh, those are not assigned based on position of the company. Those are assigned based on when you started. So now I'm fortunate I would have had one either way. I've been there 30 years. But next to me is an hourly, hourly accounts payable clerk that has also been there for 30 years. Nobody, Jim didn't get up on the table and say, look how fair we are. We just did, he just did it. We just did it. And I think those are just simple examples of where I think that we've shown our employees that we're going to do what's right for them. And, uh, and long term, that's right for our shareholders. Uh, now, in terms of expenses, how can you just raise wages and what are you going to get from it? I thought about some of the things where we save expenses. We have clearly have lower workers' compensation expense as a percent of salary, as a percent of payroll, as a percent of weight of employees, uh, per dollars per employee, than many other retailers out there. I am convinced, I'd like to think, it's partly, hopefully we do a good job of safety and floor walks and all that kind of stuff, and making sure people are lifting cases are right. It is an industrial environment, and we don't allow them to wear open show shoes. But at the same token, I'm convinced it's because they like us and they trust us, and they're not feigning. Uh, they're, they're hurt. They're not staying out longer than they have to be. Uh, lowers workers' comp. Lower inventory shortage. They, I'm not sure who they are, but they say that 70% of all inventory shortage is employee theft. Let's assume that's the case. I don't know. We, nobody will ever know what it is. I can tell you that our numbers are off the charts low compared to anybody, and they have, they have been sequentially reduced for 30 years. Um, and, and different retail is different. I mean, apparel stores at the mall are going to be a little higher as a percent of sales than a, nobody's stealing Costco toilet paper as well. Uh, <laughs> but people do take stuff. Um, you know, at, at supermarkets, it might be a half a percent to 1% of sales. And if it is, they've got to mark their goods up that much more to cover that. Apparel, retail apparel might be 1% to 6% of sales, depending on where and what type of store. At Costco, it's 
13 basis points. It's 0.13% of sales. 30 years ago, it was 35 basis points, and literally, it has gone down successively. I, again, I am convinced it's because we treat our employees well, and they're not coming in figuring out the company really doesn't care about me. There can, many times when we find an employee that has done something wrong, like taking merchandise, typically it's a fellow employee who's many times anonymously turned them in because they don't want to see the cost go get hurt. So I think there's plenty of ways that we have have benefited from efficiencies. And the last one is, is you know, 90% of our employees are on the warehouse. Two-thirds of them are out on the selling floor, stocking shelves, cashiering, cutting meat, interacting with our members every day, our customers. Uh, they are our ambassadors out there. Uh, I cherish the fact that we get more positive emails and letters from members than we do get negative ones. And I think, again, it's because of the employees are part of the equation. Can, can I can I Thank add you. just one thing? I know. <laughs> just okay. no, the, the, the point about values that you mentioned. Um, oh, oh, so, so I've studied a bunch of different companies, and I'll tell you: Costco, uh, Quick Trip, a large convenience store chain with gas stations, and Mercadona, which is a Spanish Spain's largest supermarket chain. When you look at these three companies, they have very clear values. They take care of their employees, they take care of their customers, and they emphasize excellence in everything that they do. And the hard thing is when there's a performance pressure, when you, don't, you know that you're not going to hit the um, earnings targets, you know that things are hard, how do you act when you're under performance pressure? Most other companies, I don't know any company that doesn't say we don't take care of our customers. But when they are under performance pressure, they cut customer expenses or employee expenses. So these companies, what they do is they live those values when they're under performance pressures, and that, that's what makes those values yeah. real values for you and not for, for others. So yeah. I just want to well, add that. Well, I really actually wanted to go to the customer part yeah. next because I think you, know, you both kind of brought up some of the values and, and how to engender trust, and it's not just trust for your employees, but trust of the customers and how that drives better customer service and so on. And, and I guess I just wonder, you know, sort of as, as customers, I mean, why, why do we put up with bad service and you know in other places? Sort of getting to the why don't why don't we see more of this? Yeah, I mean certainly these companies all offer better service than their competitors do. So Costco. Uh, you don't have red carpet treatment when you go to a Costco store. Um, uh, Quick Trip, when you go to Quick Trip, you, you know, the, the customer service that they offer is they have the right product at the right place with the right price, and they have you get in and out very quickly. Um, and, and these are some of the aspects of customer service that really matter for low-cost companies like Costco. You know, Costco employee is not going to help you choose the right donut for you. Right? That's not their job. But their job is to make sure that everything is there and, and, and you have a pleasant experience. Now, how many of you have gone to stores where they tell you that something is in stock but no one can find it? Raise your hand if you've had this experience. <laughs> That's the experience that we have at most of the retail stores, right? Uh, operational problems, like products are not in the right place. They told us that something was on promotion. We go there, it's not there. Uh, in fact, Susan, you were talking about how, you know, I'm an operations person. The only reason I got to write this book was because early on in my research, I found that most retailers, and even the ones that are known to be great operationally, had lots of operational problems at the stores and bad customer service. And then those operational problems led to lower sales and lower profits. That led to lower labor budgets, because when your sales are lower, now you, you know, your labor budgets are lower. And that led to low investment in people, and that vicious cycle continued. And I think for customers and for, for, for investors, for a lot of people, um, 
the conventional wisdom is this is the price we pay for low prices, mm -hmm. right? If, if, if we are getting low prices, then we can't get good service. But companies like Costco, companies like Mercadona, Quick Trip, Trader Joe's show us that actually you can offer the low prices and offer a good experience um, at the same time. Yeah. We should demand more. So vote with your wallets, right? Go to stores that actually provide better service uh, that treat their employees better. Yeah. I mean, Richard, can you comment on this? Because you mentioned sort of, you know, your employees are your most important aspect, asset. But the other thing we often hear, you know, service companies say in particular is the customer comes first, right? And yet, up documents how it's sort of common in a lot of organizations, to, it doesn't seem that way, right? The way they run their businesses. So how do you think of that? And you have come up with lots and lots of numbers. So what are some of the numbers that you sort of look at around your customers and, and their satisfaction and, and how that drives what you do? Sure, and a comment Zainab made a, a couple of minutes ago about when times are tough or expenses are up or healthcare costs are up, you know, companies feel pressured and they sometimes do things that aren't good long-term for the company. Um, I remember uh, years ago there was a New York Times article that was wonderful about us or I wouldn't be telling you about it, but it was talking about how well we treat our employees with wages and benefits and compared it to the big bad wolf Walmart. And Walmart has lots of good things about them as well. They are the biggest and so it's easy target. Uh, a lot of other retailers sometimes hide under that radar. Uh, but at the same time, one thing that was very telling, um, near the end of the article, end of the six-week period during which time this gentleman was writing this article, he was out one, one final day for fact-checking, and before he took the red eye back, I, we had a quick bite. And he said he'd been around the country and visited seven or eight different Costco's in, uh, in different parts of the U.S. And he said, you know, the thing that really struck him was, first of all, we said he could talk to anybody he wanted to. And I said, really? He said, really? And I said, yeah. It says if they, you know, if they find something bad, we'll find out about it, too, and we'll fix it. And uh, and again, that came not from me, it came from, from Jim and, and others in management and operations. Uh, but he said, the thing, he asked each of the warehouse managers, what happens when you miss your numbers for the month or the quarter? And he said, almost to the person, they said, well, what do you mean? We try to make them next month. And he said that was so different than some companies that he interviews, because this is a business reporter, that he interviews and they said, you better not miss your numbers or your ass is out of here. And when that's the mentality throughout the organization, bad things happen. The, the bathrooms aren't cleaned as often. There's a little more fat on the bottom of the steak uh, that's put in the, in the counter. There, you know, if there's that kind of pressure, bad things are going to happen. I think, again, the message from our, from our senior management and operations and merchandising has always been, you know, Yes, we want to make profits. Yes, we want to mitigate anything in bad times, but we're not going to do it at the expense of taking care of the employees and taking care of the members. And you talked also about the uh, the uh, the priority. Um, something that was again there the day I got there in March of '84, and I think it was an embellishment of what Saul Price, my Jim's mentor at Fed Martin Price Club done in the 70s, uh, was five simple basic tenets, and in this order: obey the law. And duh, take care of your members. <laughs> Not always. Take care of your though. customers. Be tough but fair with your vendors. And if you do all those in those sequence, you'll take care of your shareholders. And shareholders are fine with that as long as the stock's going up. And uh, but during those tough times, and it, it took a tough backbone and Jim and others to say, this is what we're doing. If you don't want to own our stock, fine. But 
this is how we're going to drive it long term. So in terms of those metrics, though, um, first and foremost, and again, this is being re reinforced for 30 years there, we are a top line company. Uh, if we drive the top line, a lot of other things can take care of itself. When Costco and Price Company merged in 1993, uh, Costco was newer, arguably, and you know, like us, we're going into their markets, so we're impacting their sales negatively. We're going to markets as a newcomer in growing sales. And we were running same store sales increases. In other words, taking new units out, but just how did the existing units from a year ago do? We were enjoying five, 10, uh, eight to 10% same store increases over the last couple of years leading up to the merger. Price company had had two years of minus 9%, so uh, 18 plus percent negative. So every $100 they were doing in sales, two years earlier they were doing 81 or $82. Well, you can imagine the morale there. They were having to cut hours. Uh, people didn't, you know, part-time, there were fewer people being hired. Uh, only again, only bad things can happen. It's a lot harder when sales are going up. You're allowed to do a lot of other things. So first metric, absolutely all the time is, is sales growth. Shopper frequency. We're still a merchant. We want to save you money, but we want every dollar in your pocket. We want you to buy everything at Costco. <laughs> and uh, uh, but uh, you know, uh, how often are you coming? Uh, certainly things like gas and where we've been able to provide a value. Uh, it literally drives you in the parking lot. And, uh, and, uh, and fresh foods. And you know, as the economy got bad uh, back in late 08, 09, it wasn't just the, uh, uh, the, the, the fancy business steakhouses and hotel steakhouses that uh, were impacted greatly. It was you know, regular families going out two or three nights a week to Red Robin or Olive Garden or the local Chinese restaurant. They were cutting back on that. They're cutting back to save money by buying at the supermarkets or in our case at Costco. And so that enhanced the frequency. Now the good news for us is if you go in there to buy the chicken, you might buy a couple of cashmere sweaters on the way out as well. <laughs> so we, we, we look at those metrics, frequency, renewal rates. And how, uh, how loyal are you? Uh, our renewal rates also have ticked, generally ticked up every three months for the last 20 years for a lot of reasons. Fresh foods clearly is one, gas stations, um, that one item that you can only buy at Costco because it's ours, uh, whatever it might be. Somebody bragged about the kayak that we sold. Um, any reason it is, if it gets you in there more often, it's good for us. And so we look at renewal rate, loyalty, uh, suggestion board, uh, suggestion box. Now I've heard from many friends, I put a suggestion in there and I've never heard from anybody. That's wrong, you should hear it. Even if it's the wrong answer, they don't, the answer they don't want to hear. I can tell you that uh, those questions are typed into the system every night and sorted by types of question. And senior management, merchants and operators read them basically every flight they take because they're out of town 40 weeks a year visiting Costco's and competitors and, and trade shows. Um, the other thing is, is all management from warehouse managers above. So the 600 warehouse managers, the 100 VPs, the 40 CVPs, the 15 EVPs, whatever, all the way up to the founders, uh, chairman and CEO. Um, we all take phone calls or answer customer complaints when they're written in. And one, it's fun to disarm somebody because half the time we screwed up, or more than half the time sometimes. They, they've got, they're so mad they're calling or they're writing. And, uh, but we learn from that and we learn where we're making mistakes. So we're not afraid to rub our nose in it and to, to do those things. Again, it gets back to that word transparency. So the simple metrics are how are sales? How are they growing? How are our member loyalty with renewal rates? And how often do we get, do we get our members coming in? Hopefully, they can't, for every 100 shops that a group of members did last year, it's 101 this year, 104, or whatever it is.
I want to I wanted to come back to to the to the Wall Street piece. Actually, we we've, we've talked a little bit about the big bad Walmart. Now we can talk about big bad Wall Street. But but just because. So Zainab, when you came first to the Aspen Institute, and we had Quick Trip with us, right? And I remember them saying one of the things, you know, they they weren't sure that they could maintain that business model if they went public, right? Because of the Wall Street pressure. And I'm wondering what you think, you know, what you've seen in your research. But Costco does maintain the model despite sort of Wall Street pressure. So so what do you think really is the role of of Wall Street in terms of, you know, pushing business models one way or another versus um, just the company decisions themselves? I mean, they certainly do put a short-term emphasis on, on, on management. So as, as Jim said, they're in it for the next Tuesday rather than the next 50 years. Um, but I think companies like Costco that can resist the Wall Street and show performance, they show them, look, we, this is the model and we're doing fine. Over time, analysts see the returns on their investment and they continue investing in them. So, so, so I think um, they do put the pressure, but when they trust the management, to do the right thing, they, 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 they go along with that. Uh, it requires longer time convincing. Um, I think one of, one of my objectives as a, as, as a business school academic is to educate my students who are going into investing to show them how they can affect companies um, and show them how you know, operations work within companies so they don't put short-term pressures to do things that are not good for the companies in the long term. Right. So, so um, Wall Street is not doing great things all the time, but, but I think we shouldn't use that as an excuse um, that public companies can't adopt the strategy. Okay, and you're going to make them better, right? <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> My other colleagues are trying too. Yeah. So, and so, I mean, and with, what's your sense of this? I mean, you know, you have had your occasions to resist Wall Street pressure, but, you know, for other companies, do they just not? Or, you know, what it, what would you, what's your sense well, of it? You know, there's a hundred different combinations and permutations. There's great CEOs, there's less great CEOs that do better sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes somebody thinks they're so smart that they can just cut wages and do this and save money, and uh, it's not always the right thing to do. Now, ultimately, shareholders vote with their pocketbook and in their wallet, and uh, and uh, you've got to perform long term. Uh, fortunately, we've been able to do that. Uh, I we're probably allowed a little more leeway today than we have been. Uh, over the earlier on 20 years ago, because we have performed, um, but you know we, we've stuck by our convictions uh, even when it's tough. I remember in a very early shareholder meeting. We may not have even been public yet, so in the first two or three years, well, we were public because we had shareholder meetings with lots of people. So it was probably in the first five years, and we had stubbed our toe, and the stock was down 20, 30 percent from where it had been six months earlier. And a shareholder got up in the meeting and had two plane tickets for Jeff and Jim to go down to Bentonville and see how it's done. And, by the, and again, and, and by the way, Walmart gets a lot of grief. They, yeah. they do some things well as well, and we respect them for some of those things. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, again, Jeff and Jim stuck by those convictions, and it's worked for us. Um, it makes my job easier. I, I don't have to be defensive when they, back when we'd stub our toe and the stock was down 20, 30% that week because we missed Wall Street's numbers. Interestingly, in the last three quarters, well, we don't provide formal guidance anymore. There's still a Wall Street number, which is the average of all the analysts that follow our company. There's at least 20 of them that do. Uh, and every quarter when we report our numbers, in the last three fiscal quarters, we've missed the numbers. 
one of them two quarters ago, we missed it by, you know, 12 cents on a dollar 15-ish type number, so 10%. And the stock was down a buck or two, not 10 bucks. And I think, again, that's because they know long-term, they're, they're frustrated a little bit, uh, but they believe in what we do. And, uh, mm. and uh, so I, I think over time, we have not tried to be righteous, just to be honest, and, and consistent. Right. It's, it's hard to do, believe me. Yeah. It's funny, I, I can't tell you who, but there's a, a local company that's not public, but hopes to go public in the next couple of years. And, uh, but, and through a mutual friend, we had lunch. And he was, he just, it, it's like he wanted to hear from, I'm just the speaker of, from Costco, the messenger. I, I look at all the people in the emergency operators around me. They're the guys, that, the men and women that do this all the time. But he said that he's built his old company on taking care of his employees, that, that little five you know, bullet point thing. And I, the other thing I gotta laugh about sometimes is, is this, these five bullet points weren't written after Enron or after Tyco or after Martha Stewart or after the financial crisis. They were written, frankly, by Saul Price probably in the early 70s and, uh, and embellished. And uh, I remember about 15 years ago, Jim received in the mail uh, a, a letter with some materials in it from a, a woman whose husband had recently passed away, who Jim had worked with at Fed Mart in San Diego 30 years earlier. And it was like he had discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Literally, he was running around with this one paragraph memo from Saul Price about you should, lower, you should make money by lowering prices and driving more sales, not by saying the competition can do it or we can fool our customer a little bit or put a little more fat under the steak, you know, infuse it a little bit more brine into the chicken, which is allowable. Uh, you know, uh, uh, brine water is cheaper than chicken. But at the end of the day, you know, it's some common sense stuff that's a, it's hard to do. But once you do it and you get part of it, it's great. Great. So I want to I want to um, talk a little bit more since uh, um, you know we said that this strategy isn't all about paying workers more, but in this strategy they they do earn more. And since we're in Seattle, it's hard not to talk about wages and particularly the the push on the on the minimum wage. So the and the idea you know it's. Um, Seattle's had more progress in raising the minimum wage, but it's something people across the country are, are talking about and thinking about. Um, and I guess, I guess, Anna, I'm wondering, do you think that this, um, the, that a push towards a higher minimum wage would encourage more companies to think about these strategies, or how do you see that um, that push as as maybe a, a spur towards thinking about yeah. more adoption of the good job strategy. So again, I'm I'm not a policy person. I, I'm just an operations management professor. But 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 my my hope is that if companies have to pay more. To, for their employees, then they will have to find ways to make their employees more productive. They will have to find ways so that employees can generate more sales. They, they will have to find ways to reduce their strength. They will have to find ways to be a lot more productive than they are right now. So, so my hope is that it's going to encourage some businesses to implement the good job strategy. Because yeah. this is, you know, these companies invest in their people to reduce their costs, to increase their sales, to increase their profits. They don't invest in their people just to be nice. Um, so, so, so I'm hoping that, especially for smaller businesses, that they'll, they'll take the approaches in, 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 this, in this book and, 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 and leverage the investment in people. And can you say a little bit more about, you know, well, one, I was just wondering if anybody has been contacting you to prepare for higher wages, but also, can you say where would you advise them to start? Like, if a company's trying to do that, where, how, do, how do they start? I think one of them is, 
even before then, we have to convince them that there's a good job strategy. Mm -hmm. Because right now, I think not every executive believes that this is a strategy that can work in their setting. Because the excuse that I hear all the time when I speak is, well, Costco can do this because it's a membership club. It's, it's a big box retailer. <coughs> and Quick Trip can do this because they originated in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and people are nicer there. Um, <laughs> so I mean, the, the, the reality is I looked at different companies in different locations with different store formats, with different customer bases, different products. And they all do the same thing. They invest in their people, and they make smart choices that leverage the investment in, 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 in people. So I think that as a first thing, we need to convince them that there is a good job strategy, and this is how it works. And, and I think um, the, the, the second one is, the, the, the advice that I would give to companies that will do this, is to make a long-term commitment. Mm -hmm. um, because the good jobs you invest in your people is not going to produce results next quarter or even the next few quarters. It's a long-term strategy. And you need to um, make that public. You need to get your board on board <laughs> that this is what you're going to do. And you have to communicate how you're going to implement it uh, over the next couple of years. And tell your customers, your employees, and if you're a public company, your investors, what are some of the milestones that you're going to hit as, as, as you implement this. But to, 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 to think that uh, you can do this and overnight see uh, changes is, um, is, is, is pretty optimistic. I mean, there was one large company that contacted me that had made this announcement that they are in increasing their wages even before you know, the, the, the minimum wage increase. And that's the message I, I told them. I said, look, and, and, and they were asking me, how do we show the return on our investment? And I said, well, if that's the mentality that all you're going to do is increase wages and you're going to see a return on investment, it's probably not going to happen. You have mm -hmm. to change all these other things to be able to realize that. And it's going to take a long, t long time. I, I was thinking of two things. One is, is it, it, this is just off the cuff. It's, it's, it, it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. You can't just pay more wages and not expect more. I don't mean more hours, but everybody's got to be on the team. And the employees have to gain that trust. And that just doesn't come by adding a couple of dollars to their paycheck. It comes by management saying, we're doing this, but we've got to figure out how to be better at what we do. And, 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 and again, that's hard. It's easier said than yeah. done. Yeah. So I'm curious for you in terms of, um, you know, you have a reputation, obviously, for, for paying uh, for better uh, wages and benefits and so on. Um, and, and you're saying you expect more for that. Do you think that? Um, I guess, what, I guess what I'm wondering is, in terms of creating that kind of productivity in your workforce, how much is that you know, sort of your uh, ways of onboarding and investing people, and how much is that is that you just kind of attract the best people because of your, your benefit package? Well, certainly wages and benefits, and, argue, and arguably our reputation helps that. Uh, we also encourage people who know people early on. It's, you know, there's lots of uh, friends and family not at the senior level, I'm talking about everybody. Uh, somebody had a neighbor, and, and, and that's harder today because we're not growing as fast you know, here in, in this community. Uh, it just ta it takes time. Uh, the other thing I thought about earlier, though, in terms of the wages is, and I'm not an economist. Uh, I think it was my worst grade in college and uh, <laughs> macroeconomics with Samuelson. But the, the I'm dating myself. But <laughs> at the end of the day, there's got to be that, that multiplier effect thing. These extra dollars are the most incremental, biggest multiplier dollars, because every dollar is going to be spent immediately. This is people, you know, 
the lower hourly wage people are the ones that could best benefit from this. And it's going to go, so selfishly, even those naysayers, it's going to go back into our system immediately. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, that's another positive. Yeah, yeah, great. Hopefully. So I want to um, get other folks into the, into the conversation. So I'm going to ask my one last question, which they probably won't take very long answering because I know Zainab doesn't ever like this question. Um, <laughs> is it a policy question? It is my policy question. But you know, I live in DC, and I have to ask a policy question, right? So and I, and I guess the, the policy question always is, I mean, so because you line you up this strategy, and it's sort of, it's, it's, it's good for customers, it's good for business, it's good for workers, it's good for society writ large, like if people can as we were, you know, sort of as Sally was lining up before, if the people can be, you know, earning a decent living through their work and not sort of trying to figure out how do I patch together income and public assistance and everything else and sort of have a sort of very unstable, economically fragile kind of life, um, you know, it's, it's better for society overall. So, so is there something in the policy space that can be done to encourage more companies to, to adopt these kinds of strategies that really would be sort of better for our economy, better for our society? I think a nudge would certainly help. Uh, because if we leave it up to the companies to adapt the strategy, I think it will be hard to get too many of them doing this. Because one, this strategy is a very long-term strategy, and companies, like people, tend to be short-term oriented. Two, this is really hard. It's not just about paying more, but it's actually excellence in so many different ways. It's about making lots of um, smart choices. And three, companies can make money following a bad job strategy, <coughs> right? I mean, they can still make money. So, so, so I think, um, and I, I, I liken this to exercise sometimes. You know, it's, you know, we know that regular exercise is good for us, right? It makes us healthier, we live longer, apparently we're even smarter when we exercise. But most of us don't do it because it requires long-term commitment, it requires hard work, discipline. The good but if, if, if we have a... I walk because I don't like exercising. I'm still working That's exercise. It. But it's exercise, so walk. Right. So, but if you, but if, but if, but there's, if there's a technological tool that gives a nudge or your neighbor or your friend, so here the government, th that could encourage us to exercise more, that, that works. But here, the government, some of the policies around wages, around schedules, um, uh, could, could, could provide nudges for companies mm -hmm. to, to, to adopt this. Exactly what those policies, um, would be you are much better <laughs> to answer that question that, than I am, but certainly uh, a nudge from the government, a nudge from customers, all of you here, um, uh, would, would, would certainly help. Yeah. So, so Richard, I mean, can you comment on this? Sort of, you know, there is the, the minimum wage thing. I don't know to what degree that um, is an issue for you or not. Be um, well, it, in a way, it's an issue if it was just. Anything it may impact us a little bit on the upside, but so be it. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna. It, it's gonna rain on everybody. And uh, but I, I think I, I love the word nudge. I mean, this can't just be force-fed overnight. Uh, and but and, you know, every day we read even locally about small business versus large business, about the franchisees. I don't know what the right answer is, uh, but trying to balance it so it's fair. And if everybody can be nudged in the, in the, in the right direction over a few period year period of time it has a much greater chance of succeeding. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be great if some of this stuff worked and there'd be fewer naysayers, there'd be fewer things for naysayers to grab onto. And, uh, and, and again, it's, it's harder to, it's easier the way we did it from the beginning than, than, than and how, how quickly, it, I think a combination of over a period of time and some nudges and, and that fairness issue, and that's, 
that's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Great. So I do want to take some audience questions if we have any. And do we have a, a mic or anything that we? Okay. Okay. So one thing I is this on? Oh, one thing I didn't hear you address was the cost of employee turnover. So uh. by having these practices. Um, you know, when you talk about L&I claims being down, is this because you feel that employees know the job better because you don't have the same employee turnover? Or do you have a high, I mean, assuming you don't, but uh, just the cost of that in factoring into everything that you're doing? Sure. Uh, we have very low turnover for hourly retail. I think traditional hourly retail, non-fast food hourly retail, could be anywhere from 25 to 50% or more mm -hmm. annually. Uh, our turnover in a good economy was about 17%. In this tough times, it's about 10%. And if you've been there for more than a year, it's 6%. Uh, that's off the charts low. Now, you better hire right to start with, or you, mm -hmm. that could be a challenge, too. Uh, but I, I think uh, clearly all the things that, all the reasons why there's low turnover, there's certainly less training costs. Uh, you know, there's a challenge, by the way, at the other end. With less turnover, there's uh, more people sticking around. And you know it is an industrial environment. There's healthcare costs. That's okay. I mean, we're figuring that out as well. But you know, we can continue to invest in training. I think your comment about which really didn't talk, I didn't really talk about was cross training. Mm -hmm. um, there's some positives to that too. Uh, we have 20-year employees that have been cashiers for most of the 20 years. Any job you want some change at. So if we can change it up a little bit, even within the physical confines of the warehouse, uh, to do some merchandising, some uh, some front end cashiering, some membership desk marketing, whatever, we encourage employees if they want to do something else uh, in the warehouse or outside at, at one of the regional offices. But there's much fewer opportunities there. So th those are all things I think that lend towards better service to our members and and lower costs to us or more of the cost going into the wage rather than these other things. And, and it's the same for the other companies I've studied as well. Their employee turnover is way lower than their industry average. What is industry uh, the average? Mercadona, supermarket, industry average is, I mean, it, it, it could depend from, you know, it could range Fast from food is format to, to format. But it, it is high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mercadona's turnover is less than 4%. Could you discuss that in your and, part of Oh, of course, yes, I talk about it in my book. But, but here is one thing. It's, the choices that I talk about in the book, those choices actually make the <coughs> jobs better jobs. And those cho choices lead to lower employee turnover. So Richard just talked about cross-training, how when you cross-train people, they, they, they have a variety of tasks that increases their motivation that allows them to stay longer. Um, I talk about empowerment in my book. So, so one of the things that all these model retailers do is they empower their employees. Of course, empowerment is a motivator. And when you empower and your employees are more motivated, they tend to uh, leave less often. So the choices are, you know, are, 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 are choices that, that increase the quality of the jobs, which lower employee turnover. I think some retailers don't think there's not a higher cost to doing that. If I hang on to somebody longer, it's going to cost me more because I have to pay these increased costs. And so I think as part of the strategy of getting people to understand the importance of a good job strategy, it's getting them to understand that turnover is a greater expense than what they are realizing. Yes. I remember here. 
Sorry, this thing keeps falling out. I remember years ago at one of our monthly management meetings uh, with about 100 people from all over the world that come every four weeks for a couple of days. And one of the regional operations VPs was getting up and talked about how they did versus budget the prior month and an update for the next three months. And one of the reasons their payroll expenses, a percent of, were a little higher than budgeted was that they had like three new openings in their market. And unlike a, a new Costco in a brand new market where everybody starts at the bottom wage, you know, at our starting wages, which are 11 and a half and 12 bucks, I think, uh, the, that they had a lot of transfers. It'd be like opening in Woodville here. When we opened in Woodville, half the warehouse was filled with 20 to $25 an hour employees. And, and, and uh, the, he attributed that to the, all these transfers at higher wages. And Jim went ballistic. Not at him, but in general, it says, if, if we all think that that's bad, then you don't get it. And uh, I was sitting there being confused because I'm just a financial guy. And <laughs> that is, I was going, yeah, that's a good reason why it is. And, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, these are employees that can better serve our members, that can do things more efficiently, uh, that make fewer mistakes at the register, or whatever it is. Uh, there'll be one less slip and fall in the warehouse because somebody knew that you got to, you know, mop up with a dry mop in front of the produce section more than once a day. I mean, whatever it is, all those little things. So it works. Yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Gina I'm from Boeing and I'm the co-chair skill up. And one of the questions I have is if you could talk a little bit about non-wage benefits to employees and investments employees. So looking at possibly educational opportunities, um, role mobility, career opportunities, and how that plays into the good job strategy as well as um, how that's played out in Costco um, in terms of helping folks go to community college or get different educational opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll talk about, not about the educational <coughs> opportunities, but opportunities within the, with, with, within the companies because all of these companies promote from within. Uh, and all of these companies emphasize success and, and growth. In fact, QuickTrip, the convenience store chain, their purpose is to provide their op employees opportunities for success and growth. But that means success and growth within, the, within uh, their settings. And when you look at the store managers that were all hired as, um, you know, full-time or part-time clerks, and they moved out to store management. So internal promotion is one way that, that they allow their employees to have uh, opportunities for success and growth. And the other thing is, if their employees want to go to school, uh, they offer much more predictable schedules than their competitors do. So, so they can go to school, they can do other things uh, while, having, while holding on to these jobs. But the jobs in these places tend to be quite good that uh, people want to stay there, and they see it as a, as a career. Yeah, what we have generally viewed is, is we're going to pay a great wage and provide great affordable health care where the employee pays a much smaller percentage than the industry average than in, across industries. And we have small amounts of scholarship money, but we don't have any type of affordable program for that. We have a 401k. You know, one of the challenges with 401ks at, at employer groups where there's majority of them are hourly is you're living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, even at 20 and 25 dollars an hour in many cases, and uh, so we do a, a, a decent match in the first thousand dollars just to get you started. But we also, based on one, after one year of service, you get one percent of your annual wage just contributed to the plan. After two years, two. After five years, three. After 20 years, nine. So uh, a top of scale employee who's been there 
full-time employee making somewhere in the mid-40s in terms of thousands of dollars is in addition getting nine, about $4,000, $3,800 contributed to his or her 401k plan with irrespective of they put in a dollar. So we're trying to do things for that long term, but in terms of scholarships specifically, uh, we, we don't do a lot on that. Yeah. Yeah, we very much promote from the then. Um, whenever I talk to like business school classes, uh, I give them the dog and pony with the great pictures of thousands of people trying to get into the new Costco in Japan or whatever, and some of the giant teddy bears on the back of the moped in Taiwan, and <laughs> I got some great pictures. And at the end, I say, the good news is, is Costco's a great company. The bad news is we don't hire MBAs. I mean, we don't recruit at colleges. You know, whether it's the UW or Wazoo or whatever junior college somewhere, you know, a lot of our part-timers are kids working around flexible hours, you know, our flexible hours, because we start the bakery at four or five in the morning and end up an hour after closing a few people. So there's a, seven days a week. So we have great flexible and good paying jobs. What has happened in my view is, is that for every hundred kids, just take the UW locally for example, for every hundred kids that were working there part-time in school because to make a good hourly wage with flexible hours, uh, none of whom were planning to go into retail, uh, five or 10 of them decided they liked it. And that's probably, when you think about 450 Costco's in the United States alone, that's way more than we need. So we've kind of self-recruited uh, that way. It's worked for, it's worked for us. It, it doesn't necessarily work for all companies. I used to always say that you know, Jim and Jeff liked me, notwithstanding the fact that I had an MBA. So. <laughs> One of the things I haven't heard is um, dealing with incentives. There's a conflict once managers are given an incentive to keep their labor costs down. And how would you address that at a, maybe a mid-sized company when part of your pay is based upon that labor cost? As an example, some people are expected to mentor employees, but there's a disincentive to do that because that can affect their job ratings as managers and at the expense of the employee. So if you try to manage well by mentoring, your work is depressed, and you may, be, um, you may lose some of your bonus as a result. How would you address that, or how have the companies that you studied addressed that? Um, so one is not to put too much pressure on store managers to be evaluated solely on sales, you know, payroll as a percentage of sales. In, in many other companies that follow, that, that operate in this vicious cycle that I talked about earlier, I, I saw that there was too much pressure on uh, payroll dollars because that's one thing that, that store managers can control and, 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 and try to pressure them to reduce it as much as possible. So at the, other, um, at the model retailers, I see a lot more emphasis on sales driving top line growth, a lot, of, a lot more emphasis on customer service, customer loyalty. They still uh, monitor payroll spending, obviously, but they don't put as much emphasis in, on their incent in, in their bonus systems. So that's one way that they, um, that they manage it. We got that one right. Uh, <laughs> What's that? We, we got that one right. Hey, Costco, you, you think about a warehouse manager, that is the you know, penultimate job in operations. Uh, the average new manager at Costco has about 17 years of tenure, uh, and uh, and uh, you know they're responsible. He or she is responsible for 100, on average, 170 million dollar sales building with 
300 employees, half full-time, half part-time, some salaried, uh, with 5,000 people walking in every day. There's, you know, not only profitability and expense control, but it's safety and, you know, HIPAA and HACCP and every other acronym out there uh, in terms of privacy at the pharmacy and, you know, of course, food safety and everything, and slip and falls. And, uh, and so that's a big responsible job. Of their total annual, comp of the warehouse manager's total annual compensation, about a third is base salary, about two-thirds is stock, restricted stock units that then vest rapidly over the next five years, so we want you to stick around. But then once you've hit 25, 30, and 35 years, you can accelerate that, so at some point we want you to go, uh, and uh, to get no people job opportunities. But about, I, about a third, about two-thirds equals about all. It's actually a little less than a third and two-thirds each because it's about 88% about those two numbers. And about 12% is the cash bonus of, of that manager's warehouse. And half of that cash bonus is the company hitting its profit goals as a company. So it's all or none. So it's really half of 12%. 6% of their bonus is based on metrics. One of those five Bonus, one of the five metrics that make up 6% of their total compensation is, is, pay, is controllable expense percentage, which the vast majority of is payroll. So we emphasize it, and then it's just reinforced at every juncture. Uh, every, at every uh, regional ops meeting, operations meeting, where all the, the 30 managers in the Northwest come in once a month to meet with the VP and senior VP of operations. Uh, once a year in Seattle, all 700 managers and all 11 or 1,200 buyer personnel from the nine countries come in for a pep rally, but also a, you know, a, day of, a day and a half of workshops and a day and a half of merchandise trade show kind of things. But if, the overarching answer is, is among others, is, is you got to do the right thing. And the right thing is cleaning the bathrooms every X number of hours or minutes and, and not you know, doing what's right. And, uh, if, and if it costs you a little more, don't worry about it. So I think we keep reinforcing you got to control your expenses, but it's not going to make or break that. The, hopefully the warehouse manager is not doing something wrong because of that. And certainly the comment I made earlier about uh, the newspaper reporter from the New York Times that he couldn't believe that all the managers said the same thing. What do you mean? If we don't make our number, we try to do better. So hopefully there's some, you know, don't do the same thing wrong twice, but you're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to not hit your numbers if you're doing the right thing. And uh, that's a message also that's been reinforced from the CEO on down. Um, so, um, I wanted to ask you a, a question about how you think about what you've said today for us today in, in terms of the change that we're looking for in the workforce. For example, in this state, all of the growth in our workforce will come from non-traditional populations, uh -huh. typically people who don't speak English as their first language. And do you, do you have some ideas about looking at that really sea change in who our fellow workers will be? Well, I, I think uh, ultimately, I hope they you know, can speak the language. I mean, that's going to help them as well as, uh, as where they, their job opportunities. I hope maybe we have to have programs in place to help that. Uh, uh, I think Costco does a good job of improving the opportunities across you know, everything, ethnicity, gender, you know, geography, whatever. Uh, and we also know that there's ways to go on it. So uh, again, don't 
put up these giant numbers that you can't achieve, but also when you achieve this, figure out how you get to the next level. And so uh, it's be open and honest and transparent and not just righteous uh, and, and being pragmatic. You know, you can't solve everything overnight at once, uh, but you better be going in the right direction, whatever that is. I, I think, again, we've been pretty good at being open and honest. I remember when all the pressure several years ago was about, you know, the, uh, the demographic of our employee, of, of the community is this, and the demographic of our opening employee base is a little different, and of course it gets, and at one time it's, you know, a bunch of white guys up in here. And partly it's because they all bagged groceries 30 years ago, I think. But I think starting with Jim and now Craig, they've done a good job of not only having a somebody who's in charge of diversity or in charge of something else, but actually putting in metrics that push us, nudge us in the right direction and make it a little painful, but also pain, uh, painful is not the right word. You know, do the work you got to do to get there, but also understand that you can't do everything at once. And, and but keep challenging ourselves and trying to be honest about it. And I think one of the things that we can remind ourselves is that people don't have a fixed value. Their value increases in what you invest in them. And having that mindset uh, would help us get in the right direction as well. We got a bunch of questions. Um, can you guys comment on salary caps? Um, salary caps is the lowest paid worker makes a certain percentage of the highest paid worker. I have not looked at in my in, in, in my research, so I haven't compared the C. You're talking about the CEO compensation versus the lo lowest mm -hmm. level. Um, Costco is traditionally known as one of the uh, one of the great companies uh, because they they have that much lower than many yeah. others. I, I don't think you can just look at that metric. I think we compare favorably in that yeah. metric to others. Uh, everybody at senior management does fine. Thank you. Uh, they could do finer if you just looked at the metric of how much, but uh, at the end of the day, again, it started with the two founders of the company uh, having that view. Now, you know, there's great, there's a lot of great people out there. I mean, Jeff Bezos, I think, makes a dollar an hour, a dollar a year, or, but he also owns 20% of the company. So you can't just, you can't look at, at just that salary level, uh, you know, somebody who's a founder of a company and uh, uh, or maybe, you know, some co large company hired a CEO uh, who was leaving a lot of wealth on the table elsewhere. And uh, if that CEO can perform, uh, you, you should pay for it. I, I think the better discussion here has been how do we get seven and eight, nine dollar an hour people up to 15 over time and, and how quickly can we do that? Uh, that's a, that's in my view, more of an issue. And I'm not saying that to take away from that metric because I think we would get a relative to our big, large you know, retail peers an A on it. Uh, okay, thank thanks. you. How can I um, initiate the change in my own company to start going the right way? As an um, hourly employee or as a, as a part-timer, I know most of these decisions are being taken from the top to the bottom, but how can we, the ones that are at the bottom, get to the top? Well, I don't know if this is the right answer, but I'll give you an answer I think of. Uh, how many employees do you have? Um, I work for a company that has over 2,000 
stores. Okay, well, um, why don't you send her book to the... <laughs> anonymously, just in case. <laughs> I mean, I... Ultimately, you've got a, any, any employee, and even an hourly employee or a mid-management employee can identify who above them in the organization do they believe have those types of values and ask to speak to them in general. Uh, you know, everybody, I, I think I've been fortunate along the way. I came from working class parents and my father had stepped in something and came out smelling pretty good. But uh, I had a couple of mentors and mentors can be at any level at anybody and I think within an organization, somebody that uh, you trust, uh, some, who, who someone trusts and can, can, uh, can talk about these things. I don't, yeah, yeah I, I think you have to get to the people who can make the changes because implementing a strategy like this requires the CEO and executives yeah. to be committed to that. So, I, I mean, <laughs> I'll send them my book, tell me what <laughs> who the company is, but, 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 but you need, uh, you, you need top-level commitment. So if you can find yeah. a way to get um, there through others in the organization. Okay. And I think the key also is you, don't have, you have to do it all over time, but I love the word nudge and taking a few years to do something because this is pretty big stuff. All right, I'm trying to get you in here. <laughs> uh, I, I, I see a lot of small employers, franchisees, uh, small local businesses, and they are, uh, uh, it strikes fear in their hearts to hear about a higher wage and discussion of a strategy like what we're talking about here. Uh, it, it's, it's foreign to them. I wonder if you have some ideas about how they could they could bring this together for themselves. It 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 what's them? Excuse me, I couldn't understand. It scares them. It scares them. Yes. I think it scares large companies as much as it's, it, it it will scare the smaller ones. But but the the types of things that I talk about in the book, I think if you're a smaller company, you know, Richard talks about how Costco is able to do that because they started that way. So in some ways, um, it's easier if you are starting out to have this mentality and to use your employees to actually reduce your costs, to improve your, your profits, than see them as just as a cost to be minimized. It's easier to start that way than to change. Um, so, so, so in some ways, I think smaller businesses might be in a better position. I think her second book has to be doing some case studies on smaller businesses, because, no, I, I get it. And, uh, the fact of the matter is, is, I guarantee you there's lots of small businesses out there that are already doing it, although they're not as visible as big public companies. Uh, uh, again, perhaps a small business owner who knows somebody else that they're paying their people more, can, that they're not even competing with them, it's just their friends. Uh, you know, that would be one way. It's, again, taking, sometimes taking baby steps also. Nothing has, not all of it has to be done at once. Were you? I had two questions. The first is, are any of the companies that you studied um, that are employing a good, good job strategy unionized? Um, and, and then the second question is whether, uh, whether you regard the, um, the good job strategy as one that can work across the entire retail sector or only in parts of it. You mentioned, for example, that all of these companies offer less. And so is it a niche strategy or a universal strategy? Thank you. Um, so of the four companies, the only one that has a 
um, unionized workforce is Costco, and it's um, we have six, yeah, sixty of our four hundred and sixty Costco's in the United States are Teamsters unionized. Uh, they were sixty of the hundred price clubs at the time of the merger in '93. The wages and benefits are very similar. Uh, the wages are actually slightly higher on the non-union side based on whatever restrictions and the costs associated with that. And we're very transparent about it when we discuss this, but it's a good relationship. Uh, you know, uh, our founders' views were uh, we treat our employees well, you know, we don't need somebody to help us. At the same token, we're not figuring out ways to push them out because they're there. And if our employees in those locations have them, then we're not going to, you know, we respect that as well. Do you have to negotiate a different handbook in this case? It is a slightly different handbook. 98% uh, of it, 95-plus uh, percent of it's the same. Uh, and the the non-union handbook is the one that comes out first and is what really, in our, in my view, you know, dictates those conversations. I, again, it's a good, I think you would ask them as the Teamsters as well, it's a good relationship uh, because we, I think they, I'd like to think that they use our, what we'd have in our, that they could go to other companies that they represent uh, as, as the way to do it. Over here. Yeah. The, so, 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 so I, so I, so the retailers that I've studied are in a wide range of different settings, supermarkets, convenience stores, um, and, and, and warehouse clubs. So it has certainly worked in a wide range of settings in retail. I don't see why it wouldn't work at others. And when I say offer less, I don't mean um, that everybody has to offer 4,000 SKUs like Costco does, right? If, if you are in a different format, Mercadona is a supermarket chain, and they offer 8,000 SKUs, not 4,000, because they want their customers to be able to go there and find everything that they're looking for. So, so the number of items that you offer might depend on the setting. It might be higher or lower, depending on your setting, um, but none of these companies will offer 200 types of toothpaste, which some companies, by the way, do offer. And you'll see the example in my, in my, in my book. So, so um, that's, that, that's what I talk about. You can get 40 different sizes and shapes and styles of canned peaches at a supermarket. At Costco, you get two. So the big can for restaurants and the six-pack of others. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually appreciate not having to choose among too many varieties of soy sauce, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, what steps do you think can be taken to help um, parents returning from maternity or paternity leave re-enter the workplace? And then on that retention note, how do you keep people who are returning from you know, birth of a child or even caring for an aging parent, how do you keep them at your company and working uh, for you as opposed to leaving the workforce altogether? Well, I, I should know a little more, more about this, and if you email me, I'll get you some answers. I know we have what they call it on-ramp, off-ramp, on-ramp. So your off-ramp is you're heading home to give birth or take care of a, an elder. And uh, we keep your jobs. I mean, there are certain things that I think we do a pretty good job at it. I think there are certain things that we view we can't do, uh, and I, I don't know the specifics of that. Uh, I know, uh, you know, one of the issues is is that in an industrial environment that's relatively male dominant at its start, 
how do we bring more women, you know, how do we have more women warehouse managers, an example, which is an extension of maternity leave in some cases. And we uh, started an organization called Journeys, which is uh, uh, headed by two senior uh, women executives. And, uh, and it's not about just women, it's about you know, uh, inclusiveness of all. And, uh, and so we, we try to improve on it. I don't, uh, if, please email me, because I should know more than I do. By the way, it used to drive Jim crazy, because uh, he's old fashioned in that regard, about paternity leave. And uh, when we told, we just opened in Spain two weeks, two, a month ago, and we're gonna open in France next year. And in Europe, there's 40 to 60 weeks of paid paternity leave. I'm glad he retired because it would drive him even crazy. <laughs> so. oh. Hi, um, another question regarding labor. I'm Corey from the Service Employees Union, and um, we're rec recognizing that collective bargaining as a model is probably not going to last into the far future, and we're experimenting with new models such as the $15 minimum <clears throat> wage push. Um, we found that there were almost no businesses of any kind willing to come out in favor of that policy during the fight, um, despite the fact that it's going to have many positive impacts, we believe, on the work, not just the workforce, but on business as well. And I'm wondering if you can opine about um, the best possible way for labor, either big L or little L in terms of worker organization, to interact in the new economy, especially along the lines of pursuing a smart jobs, good jobs strategy that's, you know, it's winning across the board for workers and for the economy and for businesses, even for shareholders, maybe. Right. Well, I think, again, it gets back to the fact that you can't just knock everybody over the head with it all at once. Uh, uh, as much as we would, I think all of us in this room, uh, we would like it to be tomorrow, uh, how can you do it over time? By the way, what's going to happen is, is there's going to be the complainers about it, and there's going to be the people that figure it out. And the ones that figure it out are the better operators, and they're going to do well with it, and it's going to make them even better, a, a stronger competitor to some others. And the ones that start by figuring out who's a way to, how am I going to cut hours, and I'm going to show them. I'm going to show the people that put these policies in place. They're going to ultimately be the ones that don't that lose in this battle. I mean, every time a CFO, every time in the early years when I'd go to Jim and say and talk just about the factual numbers, you know, healthcare costs are growing at 12% this year, and sales are growing at eight. It's a big nut that's getting bigger percentage-wise. It's a big expense hit. Fine, I'm not taking away from the employees. Go figure it out. Uh, and we'd go back to our desk, and, and, and a year, for about three years in a row, we finally said yes. And uh, but he says, but I'm not, don't give me some fancy formula. Figure out how, uh, how much the employee can afford. And then we went back to him a few months later, and he said, okay, that's fine. Now spread it over the next four years. I don't want to get impacted at once. And then I want to write a new letter to him. He says, I don't want some glossy brochure to say what our, congratulations to our new health care plan. It's a standard letter showing that, unfortunately, we have to ask you to share in that. So, again, I think that getting back to transparency, some nudging a little over time, a little bit being force-fed by laws, I mean, all that stuff is going to work. Uh, I don't know how else do you do it. And, and just like government, labor could be a nudge as well. 
um, to implement the good job strategy. And I think if you, if 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 the if the mentality changes from collective bargaining to implementing a strategy that works for customers, employees, and companies, uh, that will be a better way forward for both labor and companies and for, for employees. I think if, if the labor has the mentality that we're going to have high expectations of our members, right? I mean, this is, we, we'll pay more, but we'll also expect more. And we'll, we'll, we'll make all the other choices to make them more productive, cross-training, uh, standardizing and empowerment. So I think if the, if the discussion moves from only collective bargaining to implementing a great environment where customers, employees, and investors can thrive, that could be uh, wonderful for everyone. That, that's a, such a great point because it's not just paying. It, I'm not going to say who. You, we've all gone into all kinds of different stores or restaurants or whatever, and sometimes everybody's you know, energetic and sometimes it's like slow motion. I guarantee you, if part of that slow motion is the fact of how and the employees are being treated. But it also is not going to just, you get this and you don't have to change how your view is also. How do you, how do you get everybody on the same team? And that's, that's going to be a challenge for management to do, too. Yeah. Hi, my name is Kat. And unfortunately, I did not <clears throat> graduate high school and have paid the price dearly my whole life. Uh, I made the mistake of working for Safeway Corporation. They only give you six hours a week. Ironically, I was in such poverty, I couldn't, you know, they said, you want health insurance. It's like I'm already below poverty level. I can get that for free. Um, I for fortunately made it. I've been living, uh, fortunately made it to community college and made it to the University of Washington. I'm an environmental science major. <clears throat> in the meantime, excuse me, in the meantime, I, um, I'm looking for work. Are you guys hiring? <laughs> I'm happy to take for your the name. Summer. And, and, and I have gaps in my employment, you know, <laughs> because of jobs like this. I'm happy to take so. your name and, uh, and make sure your application is seen. I can't promise anything, well, but I can, I can at least get the start going. Okay. All right. <laughs> I think he was asking you guys, too, so... <laughs> Yeah. I'd just like to know where, what's a good place to start? So let's presuppose the culture's there, the desire's there, regardless of big, small company, lots of employees, little employees. Um, where do you start implementing a good job strategy? Start with the philosophy of seeing people as strategic assets rather than just a cost to be minimized. And I talk about a virtuous cycle in my book because once you start with that philosophy and, and you do better, then your performance is higher and you can keep investing in your employees. And at the same time that you invest in your people, you have to make some of those operational choices. Exactly which one you make when, I don't know because that's going to be hopefully my next book about how to implement <laughs> this strategy, but I don't know and I don't want to make it up. One more question. Okay, I, so I was so interested in this, the, the reissuance of the employee manual every three years. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you would talk just a little bit more about the process that surrounds that. What do you do and, and how do you convene employees to, um, to talk about those? Well, every, every warehouse, you know, the average warehouse is about, has about 300 employees. About 90% are hourly. About half of that is full-time, half is part-time. By the way, there's a rule that among hourly, a warehouse cannot have less than 50% full-time. 
it's, it would be a manager's job would be made very easy in terms of commercial expenses if everybody was part time and they could tell you to come in for four hours and come in all day today and then cut you after three hours because it's not that busy. And so part of the rules that were originally put in place were to, again, hopefully to be fair. Uh, about a year before, maybe 10 months before that March of 16 next time, uh, each warehouse manager, it's spearheaded by HR. And first of all, HR from the beginning of time has been told they work for operations. They don't work for operations, they work at the headquarters. But they work for operations in the sense that 90% of our employees are out in the operations, so that's who you work for. And uh, the employees f form their own employee groups. Uh, to, to, and, and, you know, there's some useful summary sheets of the issues. Some of the things are issues that, you know, management wants to change or the operations have decided, uh, uh, you know, what happens when, Seattle, was it Seattle, I think, that with the uh, change in paid sick days? It, we actually provide more days, but how they're used and how you can carry them forward. So, you know, you had, you had a change, some things that were going to be changed there. Uh, so we kind of summarized for them the things that are going to have to be changed, either by law or, or things that we're going to change because we, and why. But then, uh, it's open canvas. Come up with your stuff. Usually the, the group of five to ten people in a warehouse include a few people that have been on it for at least once before. And those are then summed up. It's, it, it's incumbent upon the warehouse manager to push this, that this is your meeting, Here, here's the stuff, goodbye. You know, you send it into HR, not to me. But it's the warehouse manager's responsibility to make sure it happens and it happens in a forum that can be honest and transparent at the, at the hourly employee level. I mean, you know, they don't want to, no supervisors can be in there, it's got to be theirs. And then those are summed up over the course of that nine or 10 months, and uh, it goes through a couple of iterations, and ultimately in probably about four or five months, so probably in November, because it's March, why March? Because the first one was done in March, however many years ago. Uh, and it's not done every year. You know, there's change, there's amendments to it all the time, of course, when things have to be changed, but in terms of the publication of the new one and, and the top of scale for the next three years. Uh, and probably in mid-November is when uh, the, now Craig sits down with the 16 or 17 EVPs, mostly are operations EVPs and merchandising EVPs, uh, and walk through it. And <coughs> the operators by themselves, senior operators will go together and, what's the easy stuff? Let's, let's, the stuff that the employees want that we can do, let's do. Uh, we don't have to have a big discussion at senior management level. And so, again, it's an iterative process that's open and honest, and uh, we get there. Great. Well, thank if, you're, you. if you're interested for a specific reason, I'm more than happy to have you talk to the people that do it. Okay. Well, I just think we should really thank uh, Zainab and Richard. This has been a really great discussion, so thank you both so much. <laughs>